Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I should note, it is thundering and lightning and raining hard outside. So if you hear rumbling, that's probably what it is. I think we've got an interesting program planned for today. But before we get started, I want to talk about two things. Um, One is... Last week, July 26th, was the anniversary of Kiki Camarena's birthday. He was born July 26th, 1947. So if my math is correct, he would have been uh, 76 on this birthday. And I started thinking about it. You know, it's interesting because he is unfortunately ingrained in our memories as a younger man. But his birthday kind of struck me, and it made me think of all the things that he missed, you know, years with his wife, watching his kids grow up, being proud of their accomplishments, playing with his grandkids, you know, all those things. And it dovetailed with a call I received last week from a retired law enforcement person who had been looking at my website, had some questions, and was quite complimentary of the way things had been put together and some of the research that I'd done. And you know how sometimes you need a moment or two to reflect and understand why you're doing what you're doing? And uh, this week kind of gave me that. And again, thinking of all that both Agent Camarena and his family, all that they missed out on. And last October, I was in San Antonio for a conference and I heard Kiki Jr. speak. And the pain that he feels to this day is so tangible. And it... For lack of a better way of saying it, just gave me renewed vigor to keep going down the path we've been going and to talk about this case and, you know, offshoots of the case and to keep asking the important questions. Because as we've talked about, there are just so many questions that still have not been answered. All right. So with that, today I want to focus on two people in particular, but before I say who they are, the idea that I had was we know more than likely at least some of the figures who were involved in the kidnapping and the interrogation of Agent Cambrina, right? We know El Sammy was involved. We're pretty sure that Fonseca and Cara Quintero were involved and that Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo was probably involved to some extent or another. And and we can debate whether that was a lot or a little. Um, We know some other people who were involved. You know, Sergio Espino Verdeen almost undoubtedly had an involvement. We know some of the other players who were either involved in the kidnapping or had appeared at Lope de Vega at one time or another. But there's also a lot of people we don't know about or we're uncertain about. 
And I want to talk about two of them today because I think they give a good representation of how complex this case still is, even though in some respects it's a simple matter, right? Kidnapped in one place, taken to another place, interrogated, killed, the body put in you know, Primavera Park and then moved to the Bravo Ranch area. That's it. But as it turns out, it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. And talking about these two people and their roles gives us an insight into that. Also gets us thinking about some things, I hope. So we're going to talk about two people. First, we're going to talk about Javier Barba Hernandez. And then we're going to talk about Tomas Marlet. And Tomas Marlet, we've talked about in the past. So I'm going to try not to greatly repeat it, but to talk about a couple of other things that, uh, remember the old line from Arsenio Hall, things that make you go, hmm, that's what the intent is tonight, is to to talk about some of these things that are are just perplexing, if if um, if nothing else. So we're going to talk about Javier Barba Hernandez, right? Javier Barba Hernandez um, was the former leader of a politically powerful and militant university group called the FEG, uh, Federation de Estudiantes de Guadalajara. He then became a lawyer, and at some point in time, he became involved with the traffickers. He became involved with Rafa Caracantero. He became involved with Ernesto Fonseca. And he has been characterized in different ways. Um, He's described as a warlord in Elaine Shannon's book, Desperados, from which I will read in a little bit. He's been described as an executioner for... Caro Quintero and Fonseca, and perhaps for Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. Uh, that's according to Jaime Kirkendall's book. But his role was, you know, is is a little bit nebulous. Barbara Hernandez becomes somewhat infamous um, because he is linked to the Walker and Rattlelat murders. Remember at La Langosta, the two Americans who walked into La Langosta, presumably by accident, end up stumbling upon or walking into a cartel meeting and are later killed. DEA suspected that Javier Barbara Hernandez had involvement in that those murders. And um, that he may have been one of the people who transported Walker and Radelat from La Langosta to wherever they ended up. Uh, it's notable that he drove a black Grand Marquis. Remember, that vehicle becomes important later on in the Camarena investigation. There's a great deal of testimony in the first Zuno trial about 
Walker and Radelat and about Javier Barber Hernandez's uh, alleged involvement in their abductions and murders. He also then, of course, was um, a witness to or somebody that the DEA at least wanted to talk to following the abduction of Agent Camarena. And I'll, I'll give you some information on that in just a second. Barba, interestingly enough, was killed in a shootout with Mexican Federal Judicial Police in Mazatlan on November 13, 1986. But there's weird circumstances surrounding that. And I'm going to read a little bit. And forgive me, I'm going to read from Desperados. And Elaine Shannon, as we talked about, does a masterful job. And I think I'm better off reading a couple of paragraphs from Desperados than I am trying to summarize what Ms. Shannon has has written here. Um, I always like to tell you where I'm getting this from, not making stuff up, right? So it's page 397 from Desperados. The two men the Landa team most desperately wanted to talk to, talk to were Miguel Angel Felix Gardo and Javier Barber Hernandez. Barba was important because he had brains. As a lawyer, he had strong ties with the Jalisco political, I'm sorry, and police establishment. He was also known as an executioner for Felix Gallardo and Fonseca. Bocia, Carlo Bocia, thought Barba might be one of the men whose voices could be heard on the tapes. If and when they do get captured, Carlo Bocia said gloomily, they'll be delivered on a slab. His prediction was at least half right. On November 17, 1986, Federales in Mazatlan gunned down Barba. They claimed not to know who he was, as DA agents reconstructed the story. The Federales said they had attempted to arrest three strangers gotten into a gunfight and been forced to kill all three. Bochi observed that the Mexican army had managed to take Ernesto Fonseca and 23 pistoleros without killing any of them. Also, Barber died suspiciously soon after his name appeared at the top of a list of suspects that Bochi had sent to Mexico City. By the way, Carlo Bochia was the first um, real head of Operation Land following the the kidnapping um, and murder of, of Agent Camarena. Bocia asked for fingerprints and samples of Barbara's hair to compare with hairs and prints the FBI forensic team had found at the house on Calle Lope de Vega in Guadalajara. The Attorney General's office replied, according to agents in Operation Leanda, that it was too late because the body had already been cremated. Since cremation was unusual in Mexico, DEA dispatched an informant to check out the story. The informant reported that the body had been buried, not cremated, and reposed in a certain graveyard. Okay. So, for those reasons and others, there was... um, 
significant concern that the murder was, or the killing of Barbara Hernandez was part of a cover-up that he knew a lot about who had been involved either directly or indirectly in Agent Camarena's abduction and interrogation, and that that's why he was killed. Now, there are a couple of other key points that I think are interesting to note with respect to Javier Barber Hernandez that link him to having more involvement in the Camarena case than may appear at first blush. If you remember our discussions about the first Zuno trial. That's the Zuno trial with Juan Mata Ballesteros. At that trial, the primary witness who talked about government involvement in the the planning, who talked about these conspiracy meetings, who alleged that big government and military people were at these alleged conspiracy meetings, that was Hector Cervantes Santos. Any guess who Hector Cervantes Santos worked for? If you said, who is Javier Barber Hernandez? You would be correct. So there's a direct connection there, right? Some other things that just, again, things that make you go, huh? If you look at the reports of witness interviews, witness statements, both from the DEA and from some Mexican sources, and you look at at kind of the, the dialogue of, all right, who are the traffickers in this area that we should be thinking about. You get some names. You get Carl Fonseca, Felix Gardo, of course. You get El Cochiloco. You get El Azul. And then over and over, I'm not going to say every time, but frequently you get Javier Barber Hernandez's name. And what becomes pretty clear, I think, in putting everything together is that Javier Barber Hernandez had gone from being a lawyer for or a lawyer who worked with drug dealers to being one of them and then wanting to be one of the bigger guys, right? One of the ones who was in charge. Keep that in mind. We'll um, we'll come back to that in a second. Shortly after El Sammy was picked up, and remember, we have had various questions about exactly who was involved in the kidnapping of Agent Camarena, whether it was three or four people and exactly who they were and where they did it. One thing we're almost positive of is El Sammy was one of them. El Sammy was picked up. He gave statements. One of the first things he says is picked up Agent Camarena, took him to Lope de Vega, and shortly thereafter, Fonseca and Barbara Hernandez arrived together. And then the three of them, Sammy, 
Fonseca and Barbara Hernandez all left with El Sammy saying he didn't know anything that, about what happened to Agent Cameron after that. Hey. So you have a key witness in the case against Zuno and others being somebody who worked with Barbara Hernandez. You have Barbara Hernandez being named as a drug dealer, a drug trafficker of note and of repute from other drug traffickers or people in the know, informants in the know. And you have him arriving at Lope de Vega with Ernesto Fonseca. Okay. Then I want to talk about the interrogation tapes. And I'm going to read from, and I'm going to try to do it and skip a little bit to, to make it flow a little bit better. Um, but I'm going to read from Jaime Kirkendall's book. Okay. And here's in part what Jaime Kirkendall says with respect to Javier Barba, and then specifically with respect to some interrogation tapes and what was said on those tapes. So here's what he says. Javier Barba had associated himself with the, the traffickers. First with the younger men in Rafael Caro's following, then with Ernesto Fonseca, and finally taking care to not appear too competitive, Barba was becoming a drug dealer in his own right. Smart and ruthless, he was a natural criminal. Speaking about the interrogation tapes, there are at least two interrogators. One is calm and doesn't lose his temper, but the voice on the end of the tape labeled Copia 2 and the beginning of the tape labeled Copia 4 is different. Angry, cursing, threatening, his questions about Javier Barba and when Kiki answers, he stamps back, what do you know about him? Who told you that? Again, questioner saying to Kiki about Javier Barbara, what do you know about him? Who told you that? Kiki says only that he is up and coming, that he is ambitious. The other interrogator, the calm one, asks, where has your investigation led to on him? Kiki answers, he lives, lives next door to Comandante Espindola, and that Espindola lived on Paseo de, del Prado. The new interrogator shouted and screamed, that's not true. Then, according to Kirkendall, for several minutes, the line of questioning continues along the same theme about Javier Barbro, with at least two separate questioners. The calm one leading, the angry one interrupting and sometimes cursing, but apparently not in charge. When Kiki tried to explain that neither he nor anyone else in the office had driven by Javier Barber's house, that he only knew where the house was because he had been to see Commandante Espindola on one occasion, the interrogator reacted. The angry inquisitor said, and in Spanish, damn, kill the bastard. There actually is some, some discussion that... Um, Kiki was was mistaken in his um, state where he was tired and confused. He he um, 
he made a, a mistake. But here's what's important. The angry interrogator knew too much. He asked the right questions and he was irate over Kiki's knowledge of Javier Barba's activities. And just as angry when the information Kiki provides is incorrect. Was that the voice of Javier Barba himself? It certainly seems so. That's Agent Kirkendall. Now, one question I have is, again, he says, Agent Kirkendall says that the angry one, apparently not in charge, which leads to a question of who the the other one would be and why Barbara wouldn't be in charge. But put put that to the side. You now have a whole line of, of thought that makes Javier Barba far more interesting than you know it might otherwise have appeared. Again, Cervantes Santos worked for him. He was an up-and-coming drug dealer. The questioning on the tapes, even if it's not Barba himself asking the questions, there are questions about Javier Barba Hernandez, which shows that he had some significance, right? And then if he is the one on the tape, or at least one of the ones on the tape, then his connection becomes even more pronounced and even more profound. All right. So that's Javier Barber Hernandez. Now I want to talk about Tomas Morlet. And as I've said before, or I said earlier, we've talked about Morlet before, so I'm going to try not to repeat everything. But for those of you who haven't heard about Morlet, I'll give enough background. So Tomas Morlet was a Mexican DFS agent. That's queer. Everybody knows that. No no disputes. One thing I want to note very at the very beginning, be super careful when you research these people on the internet because you get lots of weird things. You get things that are tied directly to Narcos Mexico, uh, and you get something that says, um, I found one place, that says that Morlet was tasked with protecting the Guadalajara cartel in the mid-1980s. He was directly involved in the kidnap and torture of Agent Camarena, for which he was shot dead by the Mexican police, and not one piece of that is true. Okay? So we'll talk about what is true. Going back, so we we know again that um, Morlet had um was a DFS agent. He had previously been active in Monterey and um placed Torreon in Coahuila, Coahuila, sorry, um as a DFS commandante, allegedly protecting traffickers and particularly the large marijuana plantations. After the kidnapping of Agent Camarena and Jaime Kirkendall tells this in a way better than I can. So I encourage you to read it again in in his book. But he he says they get information from a person by the name of William Wayne Collins, who says that he was about 100 feet away 
inadvertently witnessed the kidnapping of Agent Camarena, didn't really know what was going on at the time, but says that he recognized two men as part of the, and this is the important part, the Morlet Drug Trafficking Organization. Keep in mind that at this time, DEA really didn't know anything about Morlet. Right? They had to learn about him. They ended up doing some, some uh, background work with him. Morlet allegedly owned two Learjets that were red and had black tigers painted on the tails. Probably not the best way to lay low. Here's something very interesting. Allegedly, but this seems to be taken as true. Morlet was at the head of, either headed or was part of the leadership group, protecting the Shah of Iran in Acapulco after the Shah had fled Iran. More importantly, or in addition, Morlet became part of the Shah's protection on the recommendation of the CIA. Not overly surprising, given the CIA's connection to both the Shah and the DFS, but now you've got a connection, a direct connection, you know, a tangible one between Morlet and the CIA. At one point in time during the investigation, Pavon Reyes gave his opinion of Morlet. Now, say what you want about Pavon Reyes, you know, whether he ended up taking a huge bribe from, from Caro Quintero, how dirty he was, all of that. Nevertheless, he says at one point, hey, Morlet is perfectly capable of having committed the kidnapping. Morlet also is was notable for having the accent of someone from Sonora or northern Mexico. And more than one witness who has listened to the interrogation tapes has said that at least one of the interrogators sounded like a Norteño, somebody from northern Mexico. Again, does that mean it was Morlet? No, but it's another reason to think that he might have been involved. Um, now I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to Desperados. Okay, Desperados has um, a, a, a good discussion about Morlet. And and before I get there, two other things. One is in Jaime Kirkendall's book, there's another set of events that occurred that Jaime covers in a couple of pages that I'm going to leave for you to read. And I'm going to encourage you to buy Jaime's book and read it. But it's another set of events that leads one to believe that Morlet had more involvement in the Camarena case than was otherwise apparent. Forgetting all about Narcos Mexico and all of that crap, okay? Second thing, Jaime's book also talks about the fact that Morlet's daughter is stopped at the border at one point and gives some information that connects 
Morlet to the Camarena kidnapping and murder, though it does so in a way that that also, uh, you know, she she presents some information that was clearly false. Whether she knew it to be false, was making it up, had been told something false, I, I, you know, no, no way of knowing. But again, I think you're better off reading them from Jaime's book than than me trying to. Uh, you know, to, to figure it out. Um, so, here's what we want to talk about with respect to Morlet. Um, in addition to his daughter being stopped and questioned, Morlet was stopped on the afternoon of Saturday, February 23, on the highway between Tijuana and Tecate in Baja, California. According to, and I'm reading right now from from Desperados, I thought you were going to stop me in Tijuana, Morlet complained. The federales apologized and said they were only carrying out orders. Morlet said he had hoped that was true, or they would be in a lot of trouble. Morlet did not know that one of the men in the police car was a DE agent who also who spoke Spanish. The American agent sent a cable to DE headquarters about the conversation. When reporters called DEA headquarters to ask about the arrest, Jack Lawn told them flatly that was a sham. Soon after the press conference, the federales quietly released Morlet and his men for lack of evidence, and the DEA was um, never able to talk to him. Nearly two years later, Bowen got word that Morlet was dead, assassinated by a gunman, blah, blah, blah. What's interesting, too, is that on the afternoon of February 25, so that's two days after he was stopped, Angel Villa Barone, commander of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police Office in Tijuana, called the press conference, the one we were just talking about, to announce that his men had arrested the, quote, mastermind of the Camarena kidnapping. Tomas Morlet and two other men were paraded before the cameras. There's also a statement in the press from a DEA official at this same time saying essentially the same thing, that they'd found the person responsible for the Camarena kidnapping. The DEA one, um, we can put to the side for a second because that could just be you know, repeating bad information. But here you've got you know, the head of the MFJP office in Tijuana, calling a press conference, parading Morlet and saying, this is the mastermind? Does anybody do that? If they think there's any doubt, if there's any possibility of them being wrong, I don't really think so. (laughs) And so to me, that's a very, very important event. And what it says to me is whether he was the mastermind or not, 
whether he was at Lope de Vega or not, whether he was on the interrogation tapes or not, Morlet quite probably had more involvement in the Camarena kidnapping and the interrogation than we otherwise have been led to believe. And if he did, what does that say about others in DFS? If anything, maybe nothing. Okay, something else to keep in mind with respect to Morlet. He ends up being killed January 26, 1987, as I read from Desperados. DEA never did talk to him. Hey. The notion that he was killed by Mexican police is not correct. Okay? The best information that I can find is that at one point, after the Camarena case, Morlet had started working for or with or otherwise associating with the Gulf Cartel. And at one point had words with or a disagreement with Juan Garcia Abrego, who was the head of the Gulf Cartel, and he was killed, shot twice in the back at a restaurant called Piedras Negras. Interestingly enough, who owned the restaurant? It was Juan Garcia Abrego's uncle who owned the restaurant. Okay, so don't believe all the crap out there about, you know, it's not true. It's not proven. That's what we know, where he was, whose restaurant it was, who he was working with. Okay. As I was going through the materials, and as I've told you before, I usually start with three sources when I start looking at things. I look at Jaime's book. I look at Desperados. I look at the trial transcripts. I'll often look at DEA 6 reports. And then I start filling in things. As I was doing that, I came across something in Jaime's book. When he was talking about, it's in the area where he's talking about Morlet, but it doesn't directly apply to him. But Jaime's talking about the DA's efforts to find information, to, you know, to figure out what had happened. And he says, and I quote, and this is on page 66 of his book. But most disconcerting of all was the growing realization that the DA's much acclaimed network of informants knew nothing. Not a hint, not a boast, no gossip. Nothing. And that really struck me. Because if you think about it, if they were having trouble at the time finding information from people there, from their informants, their sources, think of how hard it is for us now looking backwards trying to get that information, right? The other thing that struck me is it makes sense then to some extent, how you could have somebody like Javier Barber Hernandez or like Tomas Morlet heavily involved in this case and in the actions taken against Agent Camarena and not really be well-known. 
It also explains, for example, why it was a couple months before anyone had heard about Lope de Vega. What it also does, though, is it calls into question, I think, the idea that you had all of these dignitaries, for lack of a better term, Manuel Bartlett Diaz, Gardoki, and others at Lope de Vega during the interrogation. If this network of informants that the DEA had, you know, had grown, had harvested, if they weren't knowing anything, if they weren't giving out any information, it's because there was very little information out there. And the amount of information that you're going to have if you've got a handful of people at Lope de Vega and a handful of people involved in the kidnapping is much different than if you have these large groups. You have a, you know people who allegedly were talking about conspiracies to get Camarena for months. Those meetings and things didn't make sense to me in 1990 when I first heard about them. They make even less sense in 2023. And then when you think about this information or this statement from Agent Kirkendall, they make even less sense. If you have, what did I tell you? At one point between Godoy, Lopez Romero, and Cervantes, there's something like 13 alleged conspiracy meetings. If you have 13 meetings with traffickers and politicians and military people and, you know, their drivers and their bodyguards and their drivers and, you know, all of that, it, it makes no sense that nobody would have heard anything. It makes much more sense that the DEA wasn't finding out anything, that they weren't hearing anything because it was a smaller group. Because it was more insulated. Okay, I hope that made sense. And, and I, I'm going to come back. All of these things are coming back to some of the open questions we had talked about. Where are we going next? A couple things to talk about for you. Number one is, I'm not sure exactly when it's going to happen, but pretty soon, much to my dismay, and probably to those of you who have seen me in person, we are going to start doing the podcast with a video element also, and then we'll have highlights on uh, YouTube shortly afterwards. So that's coming up fairly soon. Next week, we're going to start looking at some of the trial transcripts from primarily the Zuno 1 and Zuno 2 trials. And I think you're going to see that there's some really startling information. Some things that were said in 1990 and 1992 that may not stack up very well with things that have been said more recently. Um, and I'll leave it at that. But I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be surprising. And we're probably going to do that for at least a couple of episodes give you a little bit more insight into how these trials went down 
what actually was testified to, what actually was said, and we're going to do it using the transcripts themselves. As I mentioned every week, the newsletter, I think is really cool. Um, if you want to sign up for it, just drop a, a line with your email. It's free, comes out every sa- Sunday morning, uh, most weeks, Sunday morning at least. That's it for now. Um, everybody have a wonderful week. Stay, uh, stay cool where you can. Stay dry. We've got flash flood warnings uh, in the area here. But uh, everybody have a great week. And that is all for this week on con- Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Thank you very much.